Well, good morning. I would ask you to take your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 13 is where we are this morning as we make our way through our study of Luke. We are looking at verses 22 through 35 this morning. You're getting settled in. Um, This week as I was looking at this passage, my mind kept coming back to an experience that I had uh, about seven years ago or so. Um, I received a phone call from somebody, uh, from from a friend of mine who uh, was having a pastor come in the United States. He was coming from another country, and uh, this pastor was pastoring in a country where it was against the law to be a Christian. And, uh, and this pastor had had no formal Bible training, and so he wanted to come to the United States to see if he could get some formal Bible training. And, uh, and so this friend of mine called and said, hey, could you meet with him and see whether or not, uh, you know, you, you could help him out. So I meet with this guy, and, and he proceeds to tell me his story of what it was to be a Christian in a, a pastor in a country where it's illegal to be uh, a Christian. And he begins to tell how he became a Christian and then how he had been arrested, how he had been beaten, how he, you know, he had scars on his arms where they had cut him with razor blades and one arm, they, you know, he had showed me the scars and on the other arm it was worse because they had taken the razor blade and dipped it in lemon juice and then cut it on this arm and all kinds of gruesome things. You know, missing fingernails where they had ripped out fingernails and cauterized it. And all, I mean, I don't even want to tell you, it's just gross, just horrible, painful things that he went through because he was a Christian. And they did all of this to, to try to get him to renounce his faith in Christ. And, uh, and he's proceeding to tell me these stories, and he's got all the scars to, to prove them. I have no reason to disbelieve the man. Uh, he's just telling me these things. And then I ask a question that uh, to this day I regret asking. Just one of those moments where the dumbest thing that could come out of your mouth came out of my mouth at this moment. He's, he's telling me a story of this horrible moment of torture that he's in. And, uh, and the captors are trying to get him to renounce Jesus. And, and he's praying that God would save his captors. Right? He's praying for their souls as they're torturing him. And then I asked him a question along this line. I don't remember the exact words, but the question was something like, you know, did you ever renounce Jesus? <laughs> you know? And uh, I can't believe I asked that question. He's just a mild-mannered guy, and he, he's sitting on the floor, and there's a coffee table between us, and he slams his hands down on a coffee table, and he says, it's an honor to suffer for Jesus. And at that moment, I'm thinking, you, you want me to train you? I don't even know if I'm saved right now. You know, it's like... I'm not certain I'm going to heaven, you know. It's like, you know, hang on a second. I need to kind of do some soul searching here. And I'm like, I've got nothing to train you. It's like, you could read a book to know what I know. You know, it's like, you know, you need to teach me. And, and this was a real soul-searching moment for me because I saw a guy, man, talk about being all in. This guy was all in for the kingdom. He's praying for people that are trying to kill him. Literally trying to kill him. Just an amazing thing. And, and I remember sitting there 
just in awe of that moment, but, but having a moment of soul-searching of, you know, am I all in? I mean, the fact that I would ask that question shows me that I might not be all in. The fact that that question came to my mind might show some area where I'm loving my own world more than Jesus. You know, the fact that the thought of renouncing Jesus wasn't even on his mind. It just was a good challenge for my heart at that moment. And I thought about that story this week because the text that we're looking at today is one of those texts that's meant to cause us to have that soul-searching moment. It's one of those texts that, that drives you to say, am I all in? Am I all in? It's a text that's centered around a question. Somebody asked Jesus a question. Are there going to be a lot of people saved or a little bit of people saved? And Jesus takes that question and says, listen, I want you to look at your heart. I don't want you to think about how many people are coming in. And I want to ask you, are you coming in? And he pushes us to to evaluate our own heart. And so as we look at this today, we're going to be challenged to look at some honest questions about who we are, honest questions about about evaluating our own soul. Now to set this up, what I need to do is kind of set a little bit of the table here for you as to what would be driving this question. Just give you some some background. Because we have to realize Jesus has been teaching what it means to be a disciple. Really, if you're looking at at the Gospel of Luke, Luke is constantly reminding us who Jesus is and what that practically means for us in this world. Who he is and and what it means in this world. And and so he's been going through and saying, this is what it really means to follow me. This is what it really means. And he begins to unfold it. Now, I went back from about chapter 9 to chapter 13, and, and I just wanted to make a list of everything that Jesus said about what it means to be a disciple. And I want to walk through this list with you. Just There's 15 things I found. And I believe all 15 of these things are things that, that are driving this question that this guy asked. But, but let's just look at these, at these things. There's 15 of them. I'm just going to hit them off kind of quickly here. But, but starting in chapter 9, we discover that, that a disciple confesses Jesus as Lord. So, so a disciple will definitely say, Jesus is my, I'm following him. Jesus isn't a means to my end. He's my Lord. I follow him. And then he goes on to say, a disciple will die daily to self, or die to self daily in service to the kingdom of God. So we're living for the kingdom of God. It's going to challenge our flesh. It's going to always push us to see where we're loving ourselves in this world. And a, and a disciple dies to that love of self and serves the kingdom of God. Third thing, a disciple is willing to take the role of a servant all the time. So that's the position, the status that a disciple will take. I'm your servant. A disciple will count the cost and be all in all the time. We'll always evaluate. This means, to follow Jesus means I'm giving up everything for him. I don't see Jesus as a way of getting more in this world. I see Jesus as a way of getting freed from all that's in this world and living for him. So we'll count the cost and be all in. A disciple also repents, turns as that flesh emerges, turns from that, from their flesh, and is constantly embracing Jesus. A disciple shows mercy, right? Recognizing we are an object of mercy, 
We're an object of mercy, and so we're going to extend mercy to others. A disciple's prayers are loaded with intensity and expectation. They pray with intensity and expectation. There's just, there, there's just an element. I'm going before God. He listens to my prayers. He loves me. A disciple hears and obeys the word of God. Hears and obeys the word of God. A disciple does not substitute religion for faith. So not just trying to say, I just associated with God. I'm just mimicking things. I'm actually walking by faith. A disciple does not fear this world, but fears God. Fears the one that can take his soul. A disciple lives to make Christ known. A disciple lays up treasures in heaven. A disciple trusts that God will provide in the physical world. A disciple lives for the mission all the time. And the disciple seeks to live pure before God all the time. Now it's 15. I know I went through them quickly. They're up there on the screen. I don't know how fast you're able to write them down, but we'll make sure we get them on the website so you can see it if you want more to look at it again. But here's the point in going over those 15. You look at that list, right, and, and what I notice is that this is not one of those lists where I'm hearing people go, amen, amen, right? I, what I'm hearing in your mind is, ouch, right? Ouch, guilty. Right? You look at that list, and what I don't want to do in giving you that list is that is not a checklist for your week. But what that is, in my opinion, is an incredible picture of the change of attitude and the change of heart that comes over a disciple. Somebody who's starting to move in these directions. Suddenly there's something inside the disciple that starts saying, boy, those 15 things make sense to me. I want those 15 things. I desire them. A person who doesn't desire those 15 things, no matter how much they're mimicking Christ or Christianity, they're not a Christian. So Jesus has been teaching this. Those 15 things represent what he's been teaching. And if you go through, this, through the, all of the Gospels, you see as he makes his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, those 15 topics are the topics he keeps cycling through over and over and over again. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means. He's going over and over. This, this teaching is what prompts the question in the account we're looking at today. That's the setting for it. And as we look at this, and we, 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 we re- remember all that Jesus has taught, and then we look at this question and we look at Jesus' answer, what it's supposed to do is cause us to take an honest look at ourselves. And that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to see in, 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 in the last verses here of Luke 13, we're going to see what an honest look is to look like And then at the very end of chapter 13, we're going to see what a deceptive look looks like. What it looks like to actually be deceiving and and religiously lost. And my heart for us is to take an honest look today. And to uh, bring that honest look before a loving, kind, and merciful Savior. So let's, let's take this honest look here. Let's begin here at verse 22. Look at 22 and 23. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So you can see the context. He's teaching. We just went over the teaching. 
This is what he's been doing. He's been covering these 15 points all throughout his, this, this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And as he's going through this, someone jumps out in the crowd and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now let me set the context of that question up. Because you hear the word saved and you might think the way we use the word saved. Now there's some similarities to the way this man probably meant this versus how we view it. But how we view the word saved is we say, are you saved? Meaning, have you trusted in Jesus? And we say yes or no to that question. Or we start our testimony, I got saved when I was 13. That's just a term we use to describe the moment when we trusted in Christ and became a Christian. In that day, there was a slight different emphasis change on that. There was a belief, and this is all rooted in the Old Testament, and it's an accurate belief, that when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, what he's going to do is he's going to gather up all of his children, he's going to bring them into his eternal kingdom with his Messiah ruling on the throne of David for all eternity, and he's going to bring judgment upon the wicked. He's going to torment them in hell. So when they used the word save, what they were referring to was the day when all of the children of God are gathered and brought to the kingdom of God and wrath falls upon those who aren't the children of God. So when they thought about that day, they thought about it in the context that we might think about the rapture. The day God gathers his children and pours his wrath out on his enemies. Now, so the question comes up, Will those who are saved, those who are brought into the kingdom, will there be a little bit or a lot? Now the reason why he's asking that question is in first century Judaism, there was a huge debate over whether there will be a little bit or a lot. There were some who taught if you were Jewish, you're part of the chosen people, and you're coming in just by nature of your birth. There were others who said, if you're, no, you have to be following a certain type of Judaism to get brought in. So they were debating these issues, just as we debate them today. They were debating them. And so this guy wants to know, Jesus, where do you stand on this issue? Now you can see why he's asking Jesus this question, because Jesus has been going through giving these really narrow definitions of what it means to be a disciple. This is what a disciple means, right? Those 15 things are pretty, pretty strict and straightforward that we went over. So you can imagine, as he's teaching these things, this person comes up and says, so you're kind of of that narrow group, right? Not a lot of people are going to be led. Is it few or is it not few? So there's the question. Okay, Jesus is going to answer this question, but he answers it in a pretty unique, unique way. Look at, look at the end of 23 and 24. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's a really strong verse. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many will try, but they're not going to be able to get in. That's a pretty intense statement. It's pretty intense. There's a challenge in that statement, and there's a warning in that statement. Let's look at the challenge of the statement. The challenge is strive to enter through the narrow door. First thing we got to do, we got to get the image set in our brain. Because when he said narrow door, they would have known what he's talking about. So let me show you a picture of a door. In Israel, here you go. Can you see that? See how narrow it is? Don't look at the door itself, just the narrowness of it. That, that's the size, roughly, of a door to a house in Israel. Very narrow. That is much more narrow than, than, than our doors. 
And so those were doors that if there were two or three people trying to get in at once, they can't get in. They're going to bunch up against that door. Only one at a time can get through the door. So now Jesus is pulling that image of that door, and he's saying, notice, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now why does he say strive? What is he getting at? The word strive is not saying you got to work your way in. So he's not going to lay out a bunch of works. The word strive actually could be translated this way, agonize. Agonize. Now let me, let me put it this way. Uh, l- l- let's just say this, that uh, this is a pretty gruesome illustration, but, but it'll make the point hopefully. Or you might just get up and walk out and get to lunch earlier. No, I'm kidding. Here's, here's the point. Here's the, here's the illustration. Let's just say I said, by June 15th of this year, all of us have to be able to run 15 miles or I'm going to kill you. Okay, I see that's gruesome because I wouldn't do that. Okay, because I couldn't do that. <laughs> I can't run that far. But let's just say we could. Now, let's just say that's the reality. We're all going to die on June 15th if we don't run 15 miles. What would our life be like starting today between now and the 15th of June? It'd be intense, wouldn't it? It would be intense. It would take over our life. It would change the way we eat. It would change the way we, get, we, we scheduled our day. It would change everything. Now, here's an easier, softer illustration of that. Well, what does it take to win an Olympic gold medal? Right? You hear the stories of these 14-year-old girls that win figure skating medals, right? And they say, well, tell us about this. Well, starting at the age of six, I started coming to the ice rink at four in the morning. And I would be skating from 4 in the morning till 6.30. Then I would go to school. Then I would come after school. And I'd go from 3.30 to 9 every night. And then I took gymnastics on Saturdays, right? What happened? To win the gold medal, they were owned by this. They were owned. To run 15 miles by June 15th, between now and then, we would be owned by it. That's, that's the idea. That's what strive means. It means this owns me. I'm not adding Jesus to my life. I'm not adding God to my life. That's why, you know, my little small issue with the whole I ask Jesus into my heart thing. I don't really, I know I'm not bagging anybody for saying that, but the reality is we're not asking Jesus into my heart, man. I'm asking for him to give me a new heart, a new life. I want to be owned by him. And so this is what he's saying. You're not going to get in through the door by just hanging out in front of the door. It's a narrow door. Agonize to get into this. Be owned by it. That's what he's saying. So this isn't a bunch of works. This isn't a bunch of mimicking good works. This is saying, no, I... This is who I want to be. This is how I want to live. Now, let me give you some pictures of how that might look. So we take it from the big picture down to maybe some practical things. Three practical ways that I think it it looks when someone is owned by this. Okay? Rather than adding it to their life when they're owned by it. When it went to strive and to really be owned by God, by Christ, means this. First... That the Word of God is the foundation of your mind. 
that the word of God, it means it's to be owned by it. Somebody start, you, you start realizing, I, I don't, I, I need God's mind. I want to process everything through God's word. So I want to be owned by it. So I'm not looking for a verse for the day. What I'm looking for is a whole new way of thinking and processing the world. Right? I want to process the world differently. So I'm not just kind of processing the world through my way, and then when things don't work out, I come to the Bible for a verse. I'm actually saying, I want to view the world differently. I want a whole new mindset. Right? The Word of God is the foundation of your mind. Second, the gospel becomes the foundation of your ethics. The gospel becomes the foundation of your ethics. What that means is that suddenly now, what I want to do is I want to live and run and, and, and treat every situation through the lens of the gospel. So when I'm, I'm dealing with my spouse, I want to deal with my spouse through the gospel. What, what is a gospel response to this moment? When I'm raising my children, I'm not just trying to raise my children to raise my children. I want to respond with a gospel to my children. Every element, every aspect, every ethic of my life is run through the mercy, the grace, and the restorative reality of the gospel. The gospel restores, the gospel renews, the gospel shows mercy, the gospel shows grace. That is now my ethic. That's how I process things. And to be owned by it means that the glory of God is the foundation of your motives. Your motives are now run by the glory of God. So you don't walk into a situation saying, what's best for me? You say, what brings the most glory to God? That might mean my suffering. This pastor that I talked, spoke to several years ago, his, his whole motivation of life was to bring glory to God. His whole motivation of life was to share the gospel with his captors. His whole motivation of life was he wanted to know the word of God. That's why he was coming to me. Teach me the word. I haven't had a chance to study it. I don't know how to study it. This is what he lived for. You see, he was striving. He was owned by this. That's the picture that Jesus is giving. So there's the challenge. Strive to get through that narrow door. But then from the challenge, he gives a warning. And the warning is simply this. Many are going to try to get in the door, but they won't be able to. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? That can challenge some of your theology if you really stop to think about that statement. He's saying some are going to try to get in, but they won't be allowed. What does that mean? What is the picture there? The, the main picture there, and he'll, he's going to illustrate it here in a minute. The main picture here is there are those hanging outside the door. We put it in our vernacular. There's lots of people just going to church, hanging out in church. But by the nature of hanging out there, and by the nature of the fact that they might believe in God, they might believe Jesus existed, but they don't, they're not owned by it. They're not owned by it. They're not the ones out on the field, out on the ice rink. They're not the ones out there playing the game. They're just the ones in the stands wearing the jerseys and pretending like they're in it. But they're not the ones owned by it. He says, those people, they're not it. They're not it. And then he's going to get even further. Now, look at the illustration. He's going to explain that statement. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. That's the key, that answer. I do not know where you come from. 
Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Now this is a challenge to the religiously lost people here. The question is, are they all coming? Jesus is saying, no, they're not. There's a lot of people who who, who are thinking they're coming, but they're not going to come. And in this case, if you look at the end there with that whole Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob picture, he's talking about these Jews. Just They are Jewish, and they've been raised in the synagogue, and they've done all the stuff. But when that day comes and they're cast out, they're not going to be in. Why? They're not all in. They're not all in. Now, what's going on here? And picture is the door's closed. They're pushing up against the door. They're pounding on it. And he says, I don't know where you came from. Now, that is an interesting statement. I don't know where you came from. What is that picture saying? What, what, I don't know where you came from. Here's what the, the essence of that means. It means that your heart was living for another kingdom. You took on the form of religion, but deep down in your heart, you weren't owned by this. You were not owned by this. You're like that sports radio commentator who never played sports but can comment on it all the time. But you've never been out on the field and you don't know what it's like. You're not owned by it. You're around it. You can put the jersey on, but it doesn't own you. It's just something you're around. So he says, you're coming from a different place. And he's saying, and they, they respond, but, but, but we hung out with you. We heard your teaching. You know, you were in our homes. Yeah, but I never knew where you came from. You see, you're coming from a different place. I knew this guy who was, uh, was a friend of mine. His father was a very rich man, a friend of mine growing up. And this, this guy was very rich. My friend's father was very rich. And my friend's father, he just was really a fun guy to be around in one sense. But he lived to party. He took all his money and he put it into partying. He converted his whole house into the ultimate party house. Converted his garage into this incredible party place. Put refrigerators everywhere in his house. Filled with every kind of drink imaginable. And the whole thing was, come on in. Come on in at any point in time. Anyone's welcome to come in and eat and drink and party. And they would party all weekend long. And and it was not appropriate kind of partying. Inappropriate. And, uh, and, and, and my friend's father, he lived this party lifestyle like crazy. Smoked, drank, just got drunk every weekend, smoked five, six, seven packs of cigarettes a day, just, just living in this world. And uh, at the age of 52, got cancer, several kinds of cancer, in fact. And it was bad. It was really bad. And the doctor basically came and said, you know, you got about a month or two to live, maybe more. You know, but it's bad. It's really bad. And so this guy, it's funny, his, you know, uh, the dad actually called me when he got the news because he knew as a Christian, I was maybe 22 at the time. And he, and he called me and he says, ah, what do I do? You know, like, like I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's scared. So I, I remember talking to him. But the dad really didn't want to follow Jesus. 
He just didn't want to go to hell. That's all. He just wanted to know that when he died, that that was covered. So he found a church that would let him become a deacon. He literally was calling churches. Can I become a deacon? Can I become a deacon? Can I be-? Yeah, found a church. Said, yeah, come on in. We need deacons. So they brought him on as a deacon. And that church really highlighted their deacons. In fact, they always had that deacon of the year, and they put their picture up in the hallway. And in the first month, he became the deacon of the year. This guy, like, poured it on. Here's the reality. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3. He was holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. Right? He wouldn't come to grips with Jesus as Lord. He would not come to grips with saying, I need a whole new life. He just was trying to escape hell. So he's holding to this form of godliness, but denied its power. Jesus is talking about that kind of reality to these people. Yeah, you hang out, yeah, you become the deacon of the year, he does all this stuff, but when it's all said and done, does he really love Jesus? Is he all in? Is he agonizing for the gospel? Just saying, Jesus, just do whatever, man. You just be glorified in me. No, it's just, I gotta do this and I gotta do this so that I don't, so I can, my good works can out weigh my bad works so that my scale will be tipped in my favor at my death. You see, he's mimicking. And Jesus is saying, listen, those that are mimicking, they don't want to go to hell. Right? They want to go to heaven. But mimickers aren't allowed in. They're going to be held out. And they might be knocking on the door, let me in. But they're not going to get in. This is what he's saying. He says, in fact, they're going to be put out in this painful sentence of hell. So he's saying when that day comes and God gathers his children and his wrath is poured out, they will experience the wrath. So it's warning. He's warning people. He's saying, listen, take this seriously. Don't mimic. Don't just hang out around the door. Don't just kind of take on the form of godliness. He's saying agonize, strive, be all in. Because you're either all in or you're all out. That's it. The only two worlds. It's a very powerful message. But then look where he takes it. Look at verse 29. After he gives the solemn warning and he says, judgment's going to come to those who are mimicking. Judgment's going to come to those who aren't all in. But then notice the picture he paints, 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now that statement would have been very powerful at that moment. It might not have the punch for us today, but, but a very powerful thing. Because Jesus is addressing these Jews that are very religious. And they're, they're living, a, you know, he's talking to a religious audience. And he's saying, now, now you guys are assuming you're all in because you're religious. And I'm telling you, you're not all in because you're religious. You're only all in if you're all in. That's it. And other than that, you're all out. And right now, you might think you're all in because you live such disciplined lives. You don't do all the things that those people out there are doing. But then Jesus says, but guess what? There's a whole group of people out there that are going to be all in. And they're going to come in. And they're going to sit at the table and recline. So here's the question. Are they few? Is it few that's going to be saved? Or a lot? And Jesus says, 
few of the religious people, but a lot of the irreligious. They'll be brought in. Because you know what? They're ready to lay it down. They're not trying to mimic Christianity. They're not trying to just trick God into thinking that they're, they're Christians. They know that they're at the bottom of the barrel. They know they've blown their life. They know they've blown their brains. They know that they, they, they know it. And they know that they're gone. And Jesus is going to place them and hold them up. Say, you guys are coming in. And all those mimickers that condemned those people, they're going to be knocking on the door and he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So is it a lot or a few? It's a few of the religious, but a lot of the irreligious. Pretty powerful answer, is it not? What's he getting at? He's trying to get these people to take an honest look at their life. Am I all in? Am I all in? Now let's look here at the deceptive look. Let's just finish the chapter and then we'll wrap it up here. There's a deceptive look that comes in here in verse 31. Notice this. Notice the time stamp on that. At that very hour, meaning, so at the moment he's talking about this, there's a time stamp. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, what's going on? Jesus is making his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He's getting closer to Jerusalem. Herod, of course, is the governor, and Herod doesn't want Jesus in Jerusalem. Herod has no interest in this. Herod is a paranoid ruler, and, he doesn't, and Jesus is getting a lot of traction as being the king. And uh, Herod doesn't want the threat. And so Herod has made it clear that he probably, uh, you know, would do whatever it would take to stop Jesus if Jesus seemed like he was taking away glory from him. So these Pharisees come along, and obviously they've been talking to Herod or having some kind of contact. These Pharisees come along, and they look like they're trying to help Jesus, don't they? Hey, Herod's trying to kill you. Don't come to Jerusalem. There's the deception. Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Now, they hate Jesus. So you would think they would want him there if Herod wants to kill him. But what are they doing? They're playing a deceptive game. They're making it appear like they care for Jesus. They make it appear like they're trying to protect him. But in all reality, they don't want him to come into Jerusalem. Why? They don't want him to come into Jerusalem because they don't want the mass swell of people to rise up and call him king. Because it's harder to kill someone that everyone loves. So they're trying to protect their interests to kill him outside of Jerusalem. But they're pretending like they love Jesus. And they're trying to protect him. See, they're deceptive. They're very deceptive. This is a very deceptive heart because this kind of stuff, you see it going on here, but it goes on in all religiously lost people when you try to take something godly and try to use it to really further your own flesh. Right? They want to kill Jesus outside of Jerusalem. They don't want to kill him in Jerusalem. So they're going to pretend like they're, they're trying to protect him. They have his best interests in heart. And so you can see they're being deceptive. Now, Jesus has two answers here to this. Look at the first answer. It's pretty intense. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Right? He's talking about Herod. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, that could be an allusion to the cross there. But either way, he's saying, you go tell that fox, I'm going to do what I want. 
I'm carrying out my mission. I'm God. I don't think that's his answer there. Nevertheless, now this is where he starts to peer into their heart. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. That's where he pings their heart. So you tell Herod, I'm king, and I'm telling you, you're going to kill me in Jerusalem. I know what's going on here. I know the game you're playing. And you're going to have to kill me in Jerusalem. Because you see, Jerusalem's the place you killed all the prophets. Just read your Old Testament. You're not going to escape this reality. You're going to kill me there. That's where it's going to happen. So he's really strong with them. What he's doing is exposing their heart. The deceptiveness of this moment. Herod, you're not king. And you guys aren't really out to protect me. You're going to have to kill me. You, you, can't, you can't manipulate your way because that's the key to this whole thing. A religiously lost person is marked by manipulation. Do you know how many times people have tried to tell me that, that they're living for the pleasures of this world, but they do it under the guise of evangelism? Well, you know, we've got to be in the world. You know, it's how I can share Christ. No, quit using evangelism as a means for you to party. Be intellectually honest. You don't want to serve God. You want to party. You're really not evangelizing. Don't lie. That's the issue. See, manipulation. We can grab religious-looking things, stamp them on our evil motives, and then pretend like we're doing godly things. It's amazing how good we are at that. We're very skilled at that kind of manipulation. But then I want you to notice Jesus' heart. Because at this point, it could seem like Jesus is just tough guy here. He's strong. But notice the compassion that undergirds the strength. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Notice the the compassion. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings. You were not willing. So here's what he's saying. All those prophets you tried to kill, I'm the one who sent them to you. I've been trying to pull you in, but you don't want it. You see, one of the realities of a, of a deceptive look is that they really don't want to hear the word of God. They don't want to be instructed. They don't want to hear what God has to say. You know, times when you sit with somebody who's deceptively lost and you tell them, this is what God's word said. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And I say, oh, it works. You just don't want it. You don't want the cost. See, you've put your flesh ahead of God's glory. It does work if God's glory is your motive. It doesn't work if your own glory is the motive. See, that's the reality. But he's, Jesus says, I sent these people to you. I've tried to gather you, but you reject me. Then notice 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. He's saying the temple's going to be destroyed. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to come in on Palm Sunday and you're going to honor me as king, but a week later you're going to kill me. And then here's what's going to happen. The blessing will be removed. Your temple will be destroyed. Your city will be sacked. And so it is true for all religiously lost people. God's blessing is not there. You see, the deceptive look will take truth and, and what appears to be God's will and place it in front of a desire for their own motives. 
But their own glory is what's driving it. Their own passion is driving it. Their own sense of justice is what's driving it. And as a result, they're, decept- they're, they're deceived. And the blessing of God is not upon that. So here's the point. Let's kind of wrap this up. The point of this whole passage is for us to take a good, honest look at our hearts. It's a challenge to do that. But there should be a moment in time, just like as I sat there before that pastor, and he's all in, and I'm realizing there are areas of my life where I wasn't all in. Areas of my life where I was holding on to my American desires for comfort and prosperity and growth and wealth and all of this stuff. And, 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 and the thought that would come to my mind, did you ever deny Jesus because the pain got so bad, showed even in my own heart areas where I wasn't living all in for Jesus. This guy lived all in. He lived all in. And it was a good moment for me to stop and say, am I all in? You see, the lost people, they'll fight the counsel of God resist it, hold on to it because they're preserving something, control in their own life. But the saved person says, I'm all in, man. Just take me. I want your word to govern my mind. I want your gospel to govern my ethic. I want your glory to be my motive. I'm all in. So, to help you evaluate, let me give you some questions to ask. It's kind of just based on things I've already said. Just taking some of the statements I've made and turned them into questions. And they're just questions that I want you to think through. I am in no way trying to place any law on your life in, 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 in the sense of saying you've got to measure up to God. You can't measure up. That's the point. I'm not trying to say there's a bunch of things you should be doing because I don't want you to start mimicking righteous actions. What I want you to do is get down to the core motivation of your heart and mind and say, I want to take an honest look at what drives me. What is the driving motive of my life? And so let me give you three questions to help you do that. The first question, or four questions, I should say. The first question is, is the word of God what anchors your mind? I'm not asking you if you have the whole Bible memorized. I'm not asking if you read the Bible through in a year or if you go through a daily reading plan. What I'm just asking is, is there something inside of you that says, I want God's word to be the final word on everything? If God says it, that's it. That's enough. And that's what I want to measure everything by. So just evaluate the areas. There are areas probably where you don't. There's probably areas where, 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 where you have your word and your will and your standards and your mindset. So just look inside. Second question. Is the gospel what comes out of your life in all circumstances? Well, I know the answer to that. No, it's not. But the question is, where are those areas? And will you take that honest look and say, where are the areas where I've allowed my sense of justice, my lack of forgiveness, my holding people to my standards? Where are the areas where, where you begin a, a conversation about somebody where it begins this way? Well, you know, if that were me, I would never. And wherever that sentence is, not gospel. And find that sentence. Say, I, I want to bring that to the gospel. I want, I want to let mercy, love, restoration drive. Third question. Is the glory of God what motivates you? I think this, Jesus wants us to live for God's glory, not my comfort. God's glory. And God's glory 
God was glorified in this pastor as he suffered in ways I have never physically experienced in my life. And he found joy in suffering for Jesus. And I've been just praying, God, give me that same kind of heart. Your glory is all that matters, not my comfort. And the fourth question, do you see yourself moving in these directions? I'm not asking you if you're there. You're not there, I know that. But are you moving there? Is this the direction of your life? Not asking if this is the perfection of your life. Is this the direction of your life? These are the kind of things that cause us to take an honest look, and I think this is what Jesus meant by agonize. Agonize about this. Take this to heart. Evaluate it. It's a narrow door, and when it's shut, it's shut. And so agonize on it. So I want to give you a chance to do that. Would you just bow your head? Paul's going to come up and just play for a minute or so. And, uh, and what I want you to do in, in the quietness of your heart is to think through these questions. I believe the Spirit of God has already reminded you, just as he reminds me of these things, of things that you should be bringing to the Lord. And maybe go through these questions and take an honest look. Take an honest look. Pray that you don't have a deceptive look but an honest look at your own heart. So just take a moment and process through this before the Lord. Father, I just come before you grateful for the comfort of the cross at moments like this, that we can take an honest look, not because you are going to beat us up as these things get revealed, but you've forgiven us, you've drawn us into your kingdom, you've gathered us under your wing, you care for us. So Lord, as we take this honest look, I know that for all of us, there are times, places in our lives where our own mindset governs and your word does not. I know there are times when our standard of love becomes the point where we measure people, not the gospel. I know there are times when your glory is not what is most important, but our preservation and protection. But Lord, we, many of us are moving in that direction. God, I just pray that it would be more real and that, that in this honest look that, that we'd be able to lay before you these areas where we are not striving and, and living in the flesh. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that are mimicking the gospel. Lord, I pray that they would hear the wake-up call that you have clearly given. Mimickers are not in the kingdom. And I pray, God, that you and your powerful mercy and your spirit would wake them up to say, I need to be all in. Pray, God, that Jesus would become everything 
and that, that, that they themselves would become lesser in the glory of Jesus. They would know the joy of what it is to be brought into the wing of Jesus to experience His love and His compassion and His forgiveness and His restoration and mercy. So God, open their eyes today to see that. And may we all just be honest before You and Your Spirit and that, Lord, we might be all in. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.